1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, a host of the Public Policy Channel, and we are joined today by Louis A. Grossman, who's the author of Choose Your Medicine, Freedom of Therapeutic Choice in America, from Oxford University Press. So, Louis, if you would, to kick us off, I wonder if you might tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself and your background and what it is that brought you to this particular project.
1: First of all, Stephen, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Uh, I am a professor of law um, at American University in Washington, D.C., focusing on food and drug regulation, on health law, and on American legal history. In addition to having a law degree, I also have a Ph.D. in American history, and this book brings together my passions in what was a very fulfilling way for me. Um, I have been thinking about the issues that I talk about in the book for many years now. Um, I want to make clear from the start that I started writing this book uh, five or six years before anybody had ever heard the phrase COVID or the the word COVID-19. <laughs> um And I will tell you what the genesis of it was in a moment, but I will say that finishing the book during the pandemic was an interesting experience because so many of the themes that emerge in the book are being illustrated so well by events of today. And I felt that it would be a a disservice to the book and to readers to not incorporate as much of COVID into the book uh, as possible. Um, And so I did the best I could, but ultimately there's just a due date and I had to stop. Um, I've always been interested in the issue of freedom of therapeutic choice. Um, As an academic, as an author, as a teacher, um, one thing that really enhanced my focus on the issue, was a case called Abigail Alliance in the early 2000s. Abigail Burroughs was a accomplished, wonderful young woman from Falls Church, Virginia, who, while a student at the University of Virginia, got head and neck cancer. Every available therapy um, didn't work. And she got into the desperate situation where her only remaining recourse was unapproved drugs. And she tried to obtain unapproved drugs uh, and was unable to do so and ultimately died of head and neck, neck cancer not, not long afterward. And I was always really compelled by her story. Um, And her father, um, Frank Burroughs, shortly after her death founded an organization called Abigail Alliance. And Abigail Alliance soon brought a lawsuit against FDA, demanding that people in Abigail's situation have the right to purchase unapproved drugs from companies without FDA interference. And in the D.C. Circuit, which is often called America's second most important court, um, she initially won a dramatic victory, but ultimately the entire court um, uh, heard the case on banc and, and uh, decided that there is no due process right, substantive due process right, to obtain unapproved drugs. And so that itself is an incredibly compelling Discussion to have. Um, But in addition to that, in deciding Abigail Alliance, the court used a test from an assisted suicide decision called Glucksburg, which says that a fundamental right must be deeply rooted in America's history and traditions. And so both the majority and the dissenters in the decision examined whether therapeutic choice was deeply rooted in America's history and traditions. And they told very different histories and they were both very simplistic histories. And I wanted to figure out the truth. So I dove in and as a historian, I didn't limit myself to reported cases and statutes. I went to a huge range of materials from Pamphlets, to magazine articles, to descriptions of parades and demonstrations, to legislative and administrative hearings, to veto messages by governors, and uh, examined these things over the entire course of American history. And I drew various lessons that we can talk about from this examination. But the basic principle uh, or the basic conclusion I have is that Throughout American history, with a small, exceptional period in the mid-20th century, a broad swath of the population has believed that people have a right to choose their preferred medical treatments without government interference.
0: So perfect. So why don't why don't we use that as an opportunity to dig into some of that 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 history and tradition? Um, why don't we start? And we will will just for listeners, we are not going to be able to cover all of it. That's why the book exists. Um, but why don't we start? If you would uh, tell folks a little bit about what you describe as the first broad medical freedom movement, the Thomasonians. Who were they? And and how? And you lay out sort of the core themes or arguments they used to make their case. Maybe lay those out. Out for us, and then we can explore the ways those play out throughout other periods in our history.
1: Sure. Well, the first thing to understand is I realized as I started my research that if you are researching activism against perceived medical tyranny, it's not enough to just look at regulation of drugs as FDA and DEA regulate drugs today. For much of American history until the early 20th century, the main target of medical freedom activism was medical licensing. That is, systems that tried to restrict medical practice to people with certain education or a certain Uh, knowledge or certain credentials. And this was used from the beginning of American history by the orthodox medical profession to try to limit uh, the freedom of alternative practitioners to practice. And this was responded to very negatively, not just by the practitioners themselves, but by their followers. And these were really, really popular movements. So let's start with Thompsonianism. Samuel Thompson was an itinerant folk healer from northern New England who invented a alternative medicine system. Now, alternative to what? Well, at the time, orthodox medicine was in what is known as its heroic medicine phase, where doctors approached treatment largely through uh, very enervating treatments like Uh, mercury-based purgatives and emetics and uh, extensive bleeding of patients and and other uh, type extreme measures.
0: Like literally
1: Uh, draining massive quantities of blood out of people. Exactly. And in fact, I tell the story of George Washington's death where uh, uh, he may not have died uh, from the throat infection he had if he had not gotten... uh, uh, so much blood drained from the body. He had, had body.
0: alternative
1: treatment rather than orthodox me- medicine in that instance. That's right. Now, um, Samuel Thompson uh, constructed an alternative system based on uh, vegetable uh, uh, substances, uh, mainly Lobelia and cayenne pepper, uh, and as, as well as steam baths. Um, and his system became an extraordinarily popular approach to medicine in the years uh, well before the Civil War, the 1820s and the 1830s and the 1840s. And it was more than just a preference, it was a passion. And one of the things that threatened the Thomsonians was the uh, system of medical licensing that had been established in many states Uh, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And they attacked the system. They didn't attack it in court uh, and probably would not have been successful if they had. But nonetheless, their movement was a deeply constitutional movement based on American constitutional principles fought in legislatures and in the streets and in uh, widely spread literature. And in a dramatic development, they succeeded in utterly dismantling American medical licensing. Early in the 19th century, virtually every state had a medical licensing system. By the Civil War, um, many of the statutes had been revoked and even those statutes that remained were not rigorously enforced. Now, one other thing I focus on in this extraordinary movement is the fact that the strains of freedom rhetoric that the Thompsonians used went well beyond what we are most used to talking about, which is bodily freedom, bodily mm-hmm. autonomy. Certainly that was part of what they were arguing, but there were some other very important strains in their rhetoric, including freedom of conscience and religion, economic freedom in particular, opposition to uh, monopolies, as well as freedom of inquiry. And one of the themes of the book is that none of these alternative strains, and I shouldn't call them alternative strains because it sounds like I'm talking about alternative medicine, but none of these other strains of freedom rhetoric have ever really gone away. And bodily freedom has not always been the leading Uh, strain of freedom rhetoric. Uh, And these others have all had their days in the sun and all have continued to exist. And you can see all of them to some extent in uh, the COVID medical libertarianism that we see around us today.
0: So before we get there, and we're we're absolutely going to talk about about COVID, um, you you made reference to this sort of extended period of contestation over licensing and expanding and withdrawing and then expanding again um, over large chunks of history, with this exception of the mid twentieth century nineteen thirties to nineteen sixties period, which seems to be sort of this this moment of accommodation to orthodox medicine, which obviously looks very different in that period than it had previously. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on in that period and why you think we see that anomaly? And then we'll move forward into the present a little bit more.
1: So by that period, you're talking about the mid 20th century, the golden age of medicine. Yes. So this is what I thought was the norm when I was a little kid. In America, That had immense trust in its establishment institutions, in its government, in its scientific establishment, in its medical establishment, even in its big businesses. And during this period, uh, in the the wake of victory in World War Two, which was driven by scientific innovation as well as the bravery of soldiers and the uh, the leadership of, of generals, um, Americans started to embrace an extraordinary level of trust in American medicine and in American government health regulation and in the cooperation between them and in the pharmaceutical industry. Now, this was partly due to, um, Uh, some very dramatic uh, developments, uh, very real developments in terms of uh, therapies. Uh, This was an era following the rise of modern antibiotics that made terrible infectious diseases that had been the scourge of uh, populations since uh, time immemorial, all of a sudden uh, treatable nuisances. Um, And in addition to that, we had... Uh, a uh, an efflorescence of of vaccine development, where all of these terrible childhood diseases um, uh, that had uh, been so problematic for uh, for a, for human history were were now uh, largely preventable, and of course the most dramatic episode of all was the uh, invention of the polio vaccine uh, by Jonas Salk. And the rollout of it to a very, very welcoming uh, American population. And Jonas Salk was a huge American hero in the 1950s. Uh, I compare his level of celebrity uh, to that of uh, Mickey Mantle, the baseball player, or James Dean, uh, the yep. movie star, uh, both of whom he was a uh, contemporary of. and. During this period, um, the American medical establishment, uh, churned out what were thought to be wonder drugs and miracle cures and the level of resistance to that establishment and therefore the level of medical freedom activism was much lower in that period than in any other period in American history. Um... And uh, I will add that um, there was medical freedom activism during this period. It tended to be right-wing activism and it tended to be focused on the most frightful area where Orthodox medicine had made little progress and that's cancer. So there is very, very robust, uh, although a marginal, uh, activism, uh, with respect to cancer therapies throughout what we now think of as the golden age of medicine. So as you say,
0: this, this, this changes after this period, this period really is anomalous. Um, what
1: happened? What happened was the 1970s, um, (laughs) <laughs> the answer to I,
0: all of the questions about why do we have this weird anomalous mid-20th century period in everything we want to look at.
1: <laughs> That's right. You know, the 1970s for a while were viewed as the decade in which nothing happened. Um, but the 1970s were a huge inflection yeah. point in yeah. American history. And what the change was, was a dramatic decline in in trust of establishment institutions from government to science, to medicine, to big business, to the media. And it was a bipartisan disintegration of trust. And that's one of the very important points I wanna get across um, in my book because it very much affects medical freedom activism in the 1970s and um, going forward. Now, what was this caused by uh world war ii was becoming a more distant memory um you had in the uh early 1970s uh the vietnam war you had watergate stagflation an oil crisis you also had a couple of episodes that gave science and medicine in particular black eyes um in the world of nuclear science uh you had the Three Mile Island accident in Pennsylvania, which led to an almost meltdown of a nuclear power plant, which certainly diminished Americans' confidence in nuclear energy and its promise as a source of non-polluting energy uh, for time, for forever in the future. Medicine got a black eye in a largely now forgotten episode in 1976, called the swine flu, uh, uh, well, called the swine flu. It was about the swine flu. Uh, The Ford administration, which of course Ford had taken over from Nixon after Nixon's resignation uh, about Watergate, um, the Ford administration announced that a deadly swine flu was descending upon the United States of America, and he wanted to get every American vaccinated uh, against the swine flu. And it was a huge public campaign supported by the medical establishment, including Jonas Salk. Uh, President Ford rolled up his sleeve, got the vaccination in the Oval Office, uh, foreshadowing exactly what Biden did with the COVID vaccine a couple of months ago. Um, And the swine flu never really arrived on America's shores. And Predictably, uh, there were people who suffered from side effects from the vaccine, as is always going to happen. The um, Ford administration uh, surrendered, uh, abandoned the program and was subject to attacks for its incompetence, along with the medical establishment's incompetence from both the right and the left.
0: So let's flash forward, if we can, and skip over all sorts of super interesting things um, and talk a little bit about... Um, activism around access to drugs during the AIDS pandemic. Uh, and then we'll use that as a way to bring us up to the present and talk about what's going on uh, in, in what I would argue, and I think you would argue, is a very different kind of ac- activism uh, around COVID and vaccination. So, so what do we learn by looking at, at AIDS activism uh,
1: in the 80s and 90s? So AIDS activism... Was in many ways a new sort of medical freedom activism in America because it wasn't focused on alternative medicines. It was focused on uh, accelerating and easing access to products of the governmental, scientific, uh, big business, university uh, um, axis that was producing. Uh, pharmaceutical treatments. They just wanted them faster um, and they wanted them uh, uh, before approval in in many instances. Um, So they didn't reject uh, the importance of drug regulation or pharmaceutical science, but nonetheless, they did something very, very important that has had a permanent impact on American drug regulation. FDA philosophy prior to the AIDS activism was premised on the notion that the agency's job was to protect the public by keeping unsafe and ineffective medicines off the market. Therefore, when a medicine had not been shown to be effective pursuant to Randomized controlled clinical trials, FDA's position was that the government should simply prohibit, in most instances, access to that drug, even if early research suggested that this might be of help to some patients, even patients in desperate situations, such as patients suffering from AIDS, uh, which was at that point an incurable and inevitably. Fatal yep. disease. It was terminal. What the, what yep. the AIDS activists um, said was hey, government, you should let us do the risk benefit analysis with our doctors. You shouldn't be doing the risk benefit analysis and deciding for me, who has AIDS, that no rational person could possibly take this drug with the risks it has based on its uncertain promise of efficacy, you should leave that to patients and their physicians much more than you have in the past. And they had dramatic successes. They revolutionized American drug regulation in various ways that are still true today. Today, drugs are approved much faster than they used to be. Drugs are approved based on less evidence than they used to be. I mean, for example, it used to be the standard that you had to have two adequate and well-controlled phase three randomized trials in order to get drug approval. And I saw a recent statistic that in recent years, only around half of drugs uh, meet that standard. Now the AIDS activists also fought for access to drugs prior to approval. And they had a lot of success with that with respect to AIDS drugs in particular. There was a very, very robust distribution of pre-approved AIDS drugs in the late 80s and early 90s. The long-term impact of this has been less obvious. Um, The system is set up now so that um, there is a regularized procedure uh, for accessing drugs prior to approval in desperate situations. But there's nothing that requires pharmaceutical companies to provide those drugs. And for many reasons that we could discuss, uh, pharmaceutical companies are in general not that enthusiastic about doing so. But the AIDS revolution truly was uh, an astonishing one and changes all of our lives in in ways that many people don't realize.
0: The other thing that that in in reading these chapters, that again sort of struck me. If if we put put the AIDS activism against sort of the the anti-vax activism, which I want to turn to next, is is that you know there's a sort of we make or. I I know people who make sort of jokes about, about, you know, sort of anti-vaxxers who, you know, do their own research, quote unquote, and that's, you know, random Google searching and picking and choosing things that happen to support their pre-existing beliefs. But a lot of the folks who emerged out of ACT UP and what formed the Treatment Action Group, they really did the research. They learned the science and became experts so that they could go into FDA and actually speak with them, eventually as peers, yes? Do you think that was an important... First, do you think I'm accurately characterizing what went on there, and how important do you think that was as part of that dynamic?
1: You are absolutely accurately characterizing what went on there. These were very, very smart people, many of whom had no particular background in science, who became extraordinary autodidacts, who became as expert at science and regulation as the people they were talking to. And um, it really was amazing. And in fact, it set the standard for patient advocacy um, in drug regulation going forward. Uh, There are these things called advisory committee meetings that often precede the approval of a drug. And before AIDS activism, those meetings were uh somewhat sparsely attended uh meetings attended by bureaucrats and scientists maybe some people from uh major cons- uh consumer advocacy organizations starting with AIDS and ever since they can be raucous uh events with broad citizen participation and hooting and clapping and Moreover, um, behind um, every uh, controversially approved drugs in drug in recent years, there has been a patient advocacy organization led by people who, whether or not they themselves are scientists or physicians, can talk the talk uh, very much the way that the AIDS activists did. Um, I will say one other thing, though, which is that AIDS activism was not a completely homogenous phenomenon. Right. And the more that these treatment activists uh, mastered the science, were invited into the halls of government, and worked with uh, bureaucrats and experts at the FDA and NIH, they developed uh, a different attitude toward uh, things and drifted away from. A large part of the, uh, the the membership of ACT UP to the point where ultimately they just split away altogether. So I don't mean to suggest that AIDS activism itself was a uni- uniform phenomenon.
0: So let's let's now now in our, our last few minutes, bring us up to the present and talk a little bit about, about COVID. So so, uh, for folks who have not yet read the book, um, Lewis covers uh, uh, much more history, including large chunks of the 19th century that we essentially ignored, uh, as well as other more contemporary kind of, of fights, about fights about insurance, fights about medical marijuana, fights about physician-assisted suicide. Thinking of all of those issues and all of that history, Tell us how you think about what's going on in this particular moment.
1: Well, if I could just put in a plug for those chapters very briefly. Of course. Um, so the late nineteenth century was a fascinating one, where a whole bunch of other alternative medicine philosophies arose. Um, many of them uh, drugless approaches, like osteopathy and chiropractic, uh, and Christian Science and mind cure, and I find it quite fascinating the way that even as state after state re-embraced medical licensing, the system was both uh, established and enforced in a way that accommodated these alternative practitioners to uh, an extraordinary extent. Um, in the early 20, 20th century, I tell a, a fascinating story about what seems to be conscious of an anodyne bureaucratic reorganization proposal to take all of the uh, public health functions of the federal government and put them under one roof in a new department called the National Health Department. And this riled up uh, segments of the American public uh, to a degree uh, that it ended up getting defeated as a threat to uh, American medical liberty and even as a a tyrannical plot by the AMA to take over uh, American uh, medicine. So, but let's now go up to the the future. And if you could re-ask your final question to me again, I'd appreciate it.
0: So, so given, given the work that you've done on this book and sort of, as you think about the long history of, of medical freedoms movement, how would you encourage us to think about what's going on right now with battles over vaccination and public health mes- measures, and 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 credibility of of different kinds of of medical and public act- actors? How do you think about about COVID and what's going on car- currently?
1: So there's a couple of dichotomies uh, I want us to think about when we're talking about um, COVID. One uh, is treatments for communicable disease versus treatments for diseases that may be fatal to the person who has the disease, but are not of danger to other people. And even as I talk about the long American history of, uh, medical libertarianism, um, that was largely, although certainly not only about the latter category of disease. Um, and uh, indeed, in the early twentieth century, a now well-known case called Jacobson, at um, the U.S. Supreme Court, held that when it comes to communicable diseases, people do not have a right, uh, substantive due process right, to uh, reject uh, a vaccine because your individual choice has an effect on the community. Another dichotomy I'd like to briefly mention is that between uh the freedom to resist compelled treatment, government-compelled treatment on the one hand, which is usually in the form of a vaccine, versus the freedom to obtain drugs that you want to have without government interference. And when I started to write the book, I was focusing mostly on the latter phenomenon because there had been a lot of really good scholarship and popular writing on vaccines and vaccine resistance and vaccine hesitation in American history. And it was really uh, the uh, movements uh, for uh, access to drugs that people wanted that I wanted to uh, put together in a synthetic fashion in a way it had never been done before. But that being said, the whole time I was researching it, I was very aware that there are very, very important Uh, philosophical and ideological, as well as organizational overlaps between vaccine resistors uh, on the one hand and people who demand access to unapproved or unorthodox medicines on the other hand. And you have seen this really come uh, to the fore uh, with um, uh, COVID because uh, it's important to remember that. Uh, COVID medical freedom activism is not just about resisting vaccines. It's also about demanding access to hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin or uh, whatever um, drug that the Orthodox medical establishment uh, has not embraced that uh, the, uh, you know, the conservative media for the most part, uh, conservative for the most part, Um, is promoting uh, in that month. I will mention something else, by the way, that, you know, one thing that may seem different about COVID activism is it's, let me call it monopartisanship, as opposed to bipartisanship. Um, It seems like a conservative movement. Um, And this is different, certainly from medical freedom ideology in general in American history, but it does have precedence. Uh, the Thomsonians, whom we spoke about earlier, were very closely allied uh with the Jacksonian uh Democratic Party. Um as I mentioned, the uh medical freedom activism in favor of cancer therapies in the 1950s had very much a right-wing valence. And then I will add that um, I have a, uh, a relative who's a physician, uh, my sister, uh, and she was sent a book by a, uh, an ex-patient um, who decided that he didn't appreciate her embrace of science and orthodox medicine by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., right. an entire new book from the progressive side blasting uh, Anthony Fauci and vaccines and uh, the uh, the medical government establishment. So even this one has, has something of a bipartisan uh, aspect to it. But
0: he's very much the exception rather than the rule. Although pre-COVID, uh, uh, my read is that sort of there were more anti-vaxxers sort of on the putative left than there were on the right. Do you have a sense of that?
1: Well, I don't know whether it was more on the left or more on yeah. the right, um, but following the 1970s phenomena that I talked about, um, right. when anti-vaccinationism arose uh, as a as a modern uh, um, movement in the 1980s, um, there were always, on the one hand, kind of naturopathic uh, uh, progressive hippie types Um but there were also always fundamentalist Christians and conservatives as well. It was very much bipartisan. Uh, The progressive embrace for the most part of the COVID vaccine uh, combined with the uh, widespread conservative rejection of the COVID vaccine is very different from uh, the anti-vaccinationism we saw Um, over the previous few decades um, that focused on uh, childhood vaccines for things like measles. I mean, it's almost impossible to remember this, um, (laughs) even though it was only a few years ago. But like in 2016 or so, uh, there were measles outbreaks around the country. And the anti-vaccinators became extremely unpopular in much of America and uh, the exceptions uh, to state uh, mandatory vaccination laws were being rolled back uh, in many states. It will be interesting to see when, God willing, we emerge from this pandemic, whether the anti-vaccination impulse of conservatives in this country is focused mostly or exclusively on the COVID vaccine in particular or on vaccines in general. And I will say that for a long time, the vaccines were being uh, uh, administered pursuant to what is known as an emergency use authorization, which is not the same thing as full FDA approval. And during that period, uh, people resisting vaccines could differentiate it from other vaccines by saying, well, it's not fully approved well, that's not true anymore. And the anti-vaccination fervor doesn't really seem to have diminished. So what happens uh, when uh, we, we uh, emerge from this, this horror um, with respect to basic childhood vaccines? Um, and I heard somebody yesterday uh, mention that in some Southern states, there seems to be Uh, A emerging resistance to vaccination generally uh, from the conservative side of our political spectrum.
0: You have been listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Louis A. Grossman about his new book, Choose Your Medicine, Freedom of Therapeutic Choice in America, uh, new from Oxford University Press. Louis, thank you so much for joining us today. Much appreciated.
1: Thank you, Stephen, for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it.